I feel like that was a very big hype for a sermon, especially since you just saw me. Uh, it's nice, nice to get that kind of energy. I'm sure you were feeling it too. Uh, it's really good. Uh, so we've got this brand new series called Know Thyself. I'm really excited about it. Uh, we're going to be walking through the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, if you're wondering what the sand is about. And yet we're, we're asking what it means, what it looks like to know yourself in such a way that you could follow Jesus uh, as he resisted these three great temptations. What, is this, what are these temptations and what does it mean for you in knowing yourself? Um, as I think about knowing myself, one of my favorite things right now about parenting young children is the way in which toddlers do not know themselves. Uh, they really have no awareness, no understanding of their body. Some of you, hopefully all of you, will have a chance to see or meet my son Hayden, who is a year and a half right now. He is a beautiful, blonde-haired, energetic boy, and he has started doing this thing recently when we bring him home that we hit our alley. We're sort of walking back through our alley, and as soon as we hit the alley, he starts just like wriggling in his stroller. He starts freaking out almost. So the first couple of times he did this, we were like, what is, what is going on? We open up the stroller, we take him out, we put him on the ground, and immediately he shoots off like a bottle rocket. And this, to watch a one-and-a-half-year-old run is to teeter on the brink of chaos uh, every second. It's kind of, we keep calling him the Jack Sparrow run, but he uh, kind of waves the arms, he sprints as fast as he can, and as we would let him go, he would sprint to the end of our alley, so we're kind of walking, keeping up with him, and then we'd turn him around, he would just sprint back to the other end of the alley. So my wife and I are looking at each other like, what is, where is this going, right? Like, what is the end of this journey that our child is on? Turn him around, he's sprinting one more time, and yet the best part is this moment when all of a sudden my son Hayden's body catches up with the energy that he has been exerting, and all of a sudden he hits what seems like a wall, as he realizes, red-faced, oh no, I have run too hard, <laughs> right? And so he immediately will start crying, and then we'll, he'll be like, wah-wah, wah-wah, like a dying man's last wish. We'll bring him some water. We're like soothing him back to health. And it's all because he just doesn't know his own body, right? He like hits the ground and wants to run, and yet he's running way too hard. And as I've been thinking about this, if you aren't already anticipating it, you can maybe see where I'm going. I am humbled to realize I think I, for all of my adultness, might actually have the same struggle. As much as I do not take off running every time I find myself in an alley, uh, I do run occasionally too hard, right? I, I have these moments when suddenly I look up and I'm like, man, why do I have a headache? oh, I haven't really been sleeping the last few days, have I? Like, why, why do I feel jittery at 4 p.m.? Oh, was that my fifth cup of coffee, <laughs> right? And I think if you're like me, there are these moments that you have an opportunity to realize, maybe I don't know myself quite as well as I would have thought. Uh, there's this quote from a famous church thinker. In fact, just for any of you who are getting to know me well. This is one of my favorite church thinkers. His name is St. Augustine. He lived in the fourth century, and he wrote this book called The Confessions that was a reflection on his own life and really a reflection on how his whole life he was like close to God, but then he wasn't, and he was chasing all of these other things, thinking that they would be the thing that satisfied him, but they wouldn't. And so as he reflects on his life, uh, one of his great quotes is he says, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I might know thee. 
I think there's some deep and profound wisdom here uh, for us in the 21st century in realizing that so many of us have, I think, a genuine longing to know God, to understand God, to be in some kind of relationship to God, to have some sense of purposefulness from God in our own lives, and yet so many of us struggle to do this very work of getting to know ourselves and learning to pay attention where God may already be moving, stirring, speaking, and calling us. So if this is true, we wanted to look at the life of Jesus and thought that there is something here in Jesus's temptations that actually reflect very good insights into what it meant that Jesus did know himself. That in Jesus knowing himself, he was actually able to resist the temptations that were going to be put before him in Satan. Uh, To get into Jesus's temptations, I think it's helpful to realize that we often think of this time Jesus spent in the wilderness as like just something, I don't know, normal, something that was necessary, something that just happened. But I want to look with you at the wilderness for just a second as we look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. If you have a Bible, you can feel free to open up to Luke 4, 1 to 2. We'll have it up on screen for you as well. As we go with Jesus on this journey, here's the setup that Luke gives us to what's going on here in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Okay, so there's so much going on in just this short two verses. Let me give you just a quick snapshot of context. First, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit having left the Jordan because Jesus was just baptized. Do you remember this? This happens right before the wilderness temptations. Jesus goes to the Jordan River. There, John the Baptist, this prophet who himself had been living out in the wilderness, is preaching this message of cleansing as preparation for God's people, that God was soon going to come and they needed to be ready, they needed to be cleansed. And so Jesus goes into the water with John, which is almost confusing, isn't it? That Jesus would allow himself to also be cleansed. And yet we learn in this moment that Jesus' baptism isn't just about cleansing. Jesus' baptism is about anointing because the heavens are going to open up and the Spirit is going to come like a dove and settle on Jesus, which is a very sort of mysterious and beautiful image, almost haunting image. Yet this image of the Spirit coming down is an anointing because Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Jesus then lives out a witness as the Messiah, and Jesus is going to be proclaimed as the Messiah when he rises from the dead. But in this moment of baptism, Jesus is confirming, I am the Messiah. And so we now wonder, what is it that this king, this savior, this lord, this son of David is going to do next. And surprisingly, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, leaves the Jordan and is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. If you've got any Old Testament background, if you've got any Hebrew scriptures in your bones, the wilderness is a place of great testing for God's people. Uh, In fact, we have this word here in Luke 4, 1 to 2, that for 40 days Jesus was tempted, but I think that actually is one of those tricky English translations that's been co-opted. We've used tempted so many times, we almost think of tempted like an allure or maybe a seduction or something that seems really appealing. Uh, Instead, the Greek word parasimos quite literally means he was tested. He was put on trial. 
Uh, that word, prosmos, is the same word that would be used for athletes who undergo a trial to examine whether or not they are fit, capable to participate in the Olympics. Or prosmos would also be used for a trial that would take place before a court or a jury. Jesus undergoes a test. He undergoes a trial. And there's two aspects to this test that Jesus is going to undergo. I'm going to focus most on the second aspect. The, the first aspect, though, of this test that Jesus faces is actually Israel's test. Jesus faces the test that Israel faced when they found themselves in the wilderness wandering. And it's just helpful to hold in the back of your minds. Again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. It's helpful to remember that Israel in the wilderness found themselves immediately after being saved from Egypt, found themselves hungry, right? And what does Israel do when they find themselves hungry? They grumble and complain. In fact, this grumbling and complaining by Israel is going to happen so many times across their testing that it eventually is going to be the thing that keeps Moses from getting into the promised land. Moses, in a fit of fury, is going to strike this rock to let water flow so that Israel will just stop complaining. And this is the costly moment that the Lord says a new generation, a new leader is going to have to lead you because your complaining has cost you that much. And it all starts with just this simple act of hunger. Yet, if we think about hunger for just a second, uh, this is really the second aspect of Jesus' trial, the test that Jesus undergoes. When it comes to hunger itself, if you think about it, if you think about it for even just a second, and you wander back through the story of the Bible, you find that right there at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, there is this almost test that is put before Adam and Eve. They're told, listen, you can eat anything. There's this abundance of provision here in the garden, and yet there's one tree, one tree from which right now you should not eat. And this is the very tree, the very tree that Eve sees and is tempted, is tested by the serpent. She sees it's desirable, so she takes food and she eats, and then she hands it to Adam, and Adam eats. If you go all the way back in humanity's origin story. You find that we fell, we were corrupted by our hunger, were we not? And so what I think that means in this first test that Jesus is about to face is that this ultimately for Jesus and for us is a hunger test. This is a test on the hungers that each of us experience in our lives. So Luke 4.3 is going to say this, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Tell this stone to become bread. Now, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm actually pretty impressed by Satan's psychological torture <laughs> that he puts Jesus through. I mean, th think about how manipulative this is for just a second. The Satan, the accuser, who uh, I think sometimes we can have a hard time picturing, right? Uh, immediately what comes to mind with Satan is often like devil with pointy ears and a pitchfork. I think that's a bad, bad read, a bad representation. Instead, uh, there was a movie that came out a couple years ago called Last Days in the Desert with Ewan McGregor, and it has uh, sort of poetically, metaphorically, it has Ewan McGregor playing this Jesus character, and he's being shadowed by himself, the same actor, and yet he's kind of this like much darker, 
sort of mysterious, alluring, and yet tempting, testing version of himself. I, I think something like that can help us picture what's going on here. As the accuser says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, then, then simply prove it by turning this stone into bread. Isn't that a profoundly wicked setup as a test for any person? Like, it takes this core thing about you that you, you know is true, right? Like, you just experienced this to be true. Like, Jesus just was baptized. He just literally had a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And yet, Satan, Satan knows if, if there's any place where Jesus' identity is going to fall, if there's any trial or test that Jesus is going to need to undergo and pass, if he's going to make it through the life and ministry he's about to lead, it's going to be centered around this question, if you are the Son of God, if you are actually the Son, if you are actually beloved in whom God is well pleased, if you are, there's a simple way for you to prove it to me, just turn this stone into bread, which, by the way, you seem a little hungry, right? This stone could, could just take off that edge, that hunger edge. I, I am haunted by how powerful Satan is able to go after the core wound, the core place, the cutting area where our identity could matter most and yet also could be undermined and flipped on its head the most. And yet, as you think about this test, I, I want to just sit, pause for a moment on the idea of hunger as this true test of what each of us are actually longing for. So sit with me in this picture of hunger for just a second. And as we talk about hunger, I, I want to highlight the positive side of hunger and the negative side of hunger. So if you think about your own hunger, all of us every day at various points experience hunger. Like this is a very bodily reality. This is a physiological reality. This is a very present and consistent experience of everyday human life. And yet, positively, hunger's not all bad because hunger is our bodies trying to tell us that there is some real nourishment that we are in need of that is missing, right? This, this is where hunger's speaking to us. It's trying to tell us if we know ourselves, there is something good that you are longing for that needs to be satisfied. Like when your stomach starts growling, it's because if you don't fill up your stomach with proper nutrition, with calories, with proteins, with fibers, then your body at some point is going to break down. You can't keep living if you don't listen to your hunger. And so positively, if, if hunger so often for us is the physiological need for nutrients and food, when it comes to that deeper emotional, spiritual hunger that each of us have in our lives, there are good and vital things that you find your soul hungry for as you live your day-to-day -day life. One, for instance, is the real hunger for genuine human connection. If you are not connected genuinely to other people on some emotional, spiritual, and perhaps even physical level, you will die. That's what that hunger is trying to tell you. There is this horrifying study that was done, perhaps you've heard of it, on orphans in Nazi experiment camps. And what they, what they were investigating was what would happen to young infants if you took one test group and you gave them regular human contact on a regular basis. So every couple of hours, someone would come in and just pat the baby, touch them, uh, hold them. 
and then another group of children that horrifically they would do nothing with, so there'd be no human contact. And unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly, they discovered that the children who were neglected died almost immediately. Like within weeks, the children could not live because they craved human connection and they weren't being satisfied. Without those real, genuine, emotional, and spiritual nourishments, your soul will begin to shrivel up. You can't make it. Likewise, I think beyond just connection, of recognition and purposefulness. All of us hunger on some level to be recognized for the skills and the goods that we are offering through our lives, whether it be through work or responsibilities, roles, and in being recognized to then be celebrated purposefully. You matter. You, you're supposed to be here. We want you to be here. Uh, I've been fascinated uh, over the last couple of months, this huge conversation that has blown up about quiet quitting. Have any of you heard or been connected to this? Have any of you felt tempted to this conversation around quiet quitting? I've been reading the back and forth. Some people say it's a real thing. Some people say it's not. Some people say that it needs to be paid attention to. Other people are very dismissive of it. What I think is, is so profound about it is that generationally, we're wrestling with this hunger that is not currently being satisfied for some of us in our work. And it presses upon us this deep sense that some good, a purposefulness to our work, a purposefulness to what we are contributing, what we are being recognized with in our lives, it matters. If you don't have that, something in you is going to shrivel up and die. So this is where hunger is so important in knowing yourself. If you can't connect to what is actually going on in your hunger, what is the good nutrition that your soul is craving, then you're never going to be able to find a peace or a fullness that's required to navigate your day-to-day -day life. But if that's the positive to hunger, there is, of course, a flip side to hunger, the, the dark side, the negative side to hunger. And this is what I'm going to call the ache of hunger. How many of you know the ache of hunger? And let me be honest with you, I hate the ache of hunger. It is one of the least enjoyable feelings, I would argue, in a person's life because it happens so regularly. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, even though it's so hard to describe. It's just like feeling inside your gut, like someone has clenched it or is twisting it somehow. Whew. And hopefully you had lots of snacks before you came in, so you are not currently feeling the ache of hunger. And yet what I think is so profound about this physiological phenomenon that happens right here in our stomachs every day is that it's that ache that is trying to signal something to us but that can often hijack our brains and begin to control our hunger and even control our fear of hunger in such a way that I find myself doing lots of unhealthy things to simply avoid that ache. Does anyone else hear me in that one? Uh, that there's all kinds of foods that are not actually that good for me, but that I will take into my body because I just really don't want to feel that ache. Uh, there's times when I find myself preemptively anticipating, oh man, it's 10 a.m. That ache's going to be coming soon. Does anyone else live there at like 10 a.m.? Or the other one often is about 3.30. Ooh, if I just walked over to that pantry, if I just head past that certain spot on the way home, if I maybe just got that little bit extra food, whew, it would be so nice to not have to confront the ache today. 
I think this is what's so real about hunger. This is where unhealthy patterns of eating and hunger takes place. Really, for all of us, we just don't want to feel that kind of ache in our gut. And yet, if that's true about our hunger for physical food, think about what we do in our emotional, spiritual lives as we try to avoid that ache. I think about alcoholism or drug abuse as just a very easy example. Um, Tragically, I have been proximate to a number of close relationships as I've watched. And the thing about alcoholism or drug and substance abuse is not, of course, that alcoholism in and of uh, that alcohol in and of itself is a terrible thing. It's not, of course, that the good that is being received from that drug and the experience of ingesting it is actually in and of itself all that overwhelming. It's really the repeated pattern, isn't it, of trying to avoid the ache that comes on the other side of that letdown. It's the fear of the ache that drives you back again and again and again to this thing that you increasingly are realizing is going to tear your life apart. And yet this thing that the more you try to walk away from, the more you realize, I need that to avoid the ache. Uh, There's this incredible uh, book I read recently by a neuroscientist named Judith Grizel. I actually would highly recommend it if any of you are interested in addictions or just studies around the brain and addictions. Yet it's actually a personal memoir of Judith's life that Judith found herself as a teenager in in suburban Florida, just living like a very normal, middle-class, safe existence. Nothing was terribly long. There was no massive tragedies in her story. And yet as a teenager, she found herself uh, taking alcohol and drugs together at some instance at a party, and she describes it as feeling like, for the first time, that ache that she felt all the time, just being around other people, for a moment was gone. Like this was helping to, to solve or to soothe the ache within her soul. And yet inevitably, of course, she kept returning over and over and over again to alcohol, then to drugs. It leads to her dropping out of college. Before she knows it, she's living in a flat with other people who are also themselves hooked on drugs. They're sort of taking advantage of each other as their whole life becomes about just getting enough money to be able to get drugs back into their apartment. And this quote that I'm going to share with you comes for her in the moment where she says she finally hit rock bottom. And I find this fascinating when it comes to the temptation Jesus experienced. She says, I was 22 and I'd been on the good end of a bad drug deal. In the wee hours of some morning late in 1985 behind a nameless restaurant in South Florida, a dealer gave me and a friend the wrong bag. What transpires after the bad drug deal is that she and her friend realize they've actually received this massive amount of cocaine that was not intended for them, but they've gotten it. And so because they were afraid that this drug dealer was coming back, she and this friend rush off to go and consume as much of the cocaine as they possibly can. Yet, as the end of her quote says, uh, towards the end of that binge, the stash mercifully depleted, both of us exhausted and on edge, my friend inexplicably announced that there would never be enough cocaine for us. And she says this is the moment for her that that phrase stuck and repeated in her mind over and over again and finally became the only sight of light that could finally break through the fog of her chasing, getting rid of this ache through drugs. This realization that there's actually never enough cocaine to take away my ache. Now, I have a feeling that most of us here 
are not in the extremes of Judith's story. And yet, what I love about reflecting on addiction is that for most of us, if we're being honest, if it's not drugs and alcohol abuse, most of us are addicted to something, are we not? There are some hungers in our lives that we are chasing because we think if we could just get enough of that, if I could just get enough recognition at work, if I could just make enough money, if I could just get married, then maybe, maybe for a moment that ache would finally disappear. Here, though, is what Jesus says in response to the accuser as he's there in the wilderness. Jesus offers a simple phrase in response to Satan. He says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus looks at Satan and he says to him, there will never be enough bread to satisfy my hunger. Just sit with the profoundness of Jesus's clear-sightedness and trust. There will never be enough bread to satisfy my hunger. Jesus is actually alluding here in this short snippet to a whole verse that comes from Deuteronomy. I actually love if we pull this verse up. This is from Deuteronomy 8.3. You think about this verse, this comes in Israel's story as Moses is responding to Israel's own failing in the wilderness. And Moses is going to say this to Israel, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you or your ancestors had known or deserved, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Here's what's going on in the hunger test. Jesus is trying to tell us that there is never enough bread. There is never enough of whatever you're longing for to satisfy your hunger, to satisfy your ache, apart from the one who knows and made you and wants to speak his word to you. If you try to control your hunger and avoid or numb out or even just temporarily satisfy your ache, eventually the thing you're trying to consume will turn around and begin to consume you. But as Deuteronomy says, if you can humble yourself, if you can resist this temptation to rely on yourself to satisfy your own hunger, if you instead shift your center of trust, this is at the heart of what Jesus is doing. He is shifting his trust from bread to the word of God. He's shifting his trust from his hunger and his need to satisfy his hunger to his relationship to his heavenly father. If you can do that shift, then there is one, and Jesus is so clear on this, who will feed you. Actually, this is Israel's great witness to us. If you trust in God, God will feed you. There will be enough bread for you today. This is Jesus in the Lord's Prayer who says, Lord, my father, give me today the bread that I need. Let me have today that which I need to satisfy the nutritional goods that I must live on. But the challenge for each of us is when we try to live out our own control of our hunger, we find ourselves ultimately consumed by these things that are never going to satisfy us. This reminds me of this beautiful quote from C.S. Lewis. You've perhaps heard this. If you've read any of C.S. Lewis, he has a great book, Mere Christianity, uh, that goes over the basics of the faith, and yet He has this huge argument for God 
and for the life of following Jesus, uh, why it's so much better than a life apart from Jesus or from God. He says, most people, if they'd really learned to look into their own hearts, would know what they want, what they do want, and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying, and this is what Jesus is saying to us as well. If you do the work of knowing yourself, you're going to realize there are these hungers within you, and the good of those hungers is pointing you to real needs in your life, and yet the ache in those hungers is constantly reminding you that you cannot satisfy fully or completely or even sustainably these hungers on your own. Instead, if you can return to God the Father, if you can shift your center of trust, if you can follow Jesus himself who resisted this test for you, you can discover that God actually wants to satisfy the deeper needs of your soul. He wants to offer you the connection that you've been longing for. Jesus wants to offer the presence that you've been missing. He wants to give you an identity you can never lose, a family that will never abandon you, and he offers you a love that flows eternally and self-sufficiently, not from yourself, but from God himself. It's amazing if you track the New Testament. This story of Jesus' test in the wilderness is actually going to be culminated and complete in the Gospel of John. I'm sure you've potentially heard or seen this verse, and yet I think it's so powerful to connect it to this moment. In John 6, 35, Jesus is going to declare, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst again. 